Today's show is brought to you by TransferWise. Do you ever have to send money internationally? If you do, you know it's expensive and time-consuming, and the exchange rate you get from your bank or provider can be terrible. Next time you have to make an international money transfer, you should use TransferWise. The exchange rate is incredibly good, so your money goes much further, and you pay only one small upfront fee. Setting up a payment is simple and fast. You know exactly what you'll pay up front, and you get a real exchange rate with no markup. Today, TransferWise lets millions of people and businesses all over the world send money internationally. See how much you can save at TransferWise.com. You can download the app for Android or iOS. Once again, that's TransferWise.com. Transfer as in I need to transfer money to another country. Wise as in I'm going to do it the wise way. TransferWise.com. Hi, I'm Kara Swisher, executive editor of Recode. You're listening to Recode Decode, a podcast about tech and media's key players, big ideas, and how they're changing the world we live in. Today, we're going to play an interview I conducted at South by Southwest in Austin, Texas at Vox Media's The Deep End. I talked to attorney, businesswoman, and civic leader Valerie Jarrett, who was a guest on Recode Decode while serving as an advisor to President Barack Obama. We talked about diversity and inclusion in the tech industry and how to lead in the Me Too era. Let's take a listen. So I have been lucky enough to have so many badass women uh, I've been able to interview at uh, South by Southwest. and I Do I get to be a badass woman? You're the baddest assist Ooh, of them. I like so, that. Um, no, I'm so, happy. So thank you for coming. So we, we've been talking backstage a mile a minute about a lot of things. Um, but I, I was telling Valerie, I'd be remiss if I didn't. Valerie just got in the news uh, this week for being on The View, which is fascinating. Can you illuminate us on... You said that it was a little more nuanced, what you were trying to say uh, yes. in reference to Farrakhan and uh, t- uh, Tamika Mallory. So we were having a conversation about Tamika Mallory, who's one of the young leaders of the Women's March movement. And we were talking about leadership. And I said, look, leaders have to meet with all kinds of people that they don't agree with. And I said, so I meet with the Koch brothers or Rupert Murdoch to try to get criminal justice or uh, immigration reform done. I said, but the difference is associating yourself with their values. And what she did was not make it clear that hate is not tolerable under any circumstances. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't about her working with them. That Mm -hmm. wasn't the issue. My issue was that you can't in any way endorse hate if you Mm -hmm. want to be the leader of an inclusive movement. And I think what you're reacting to is that people try to say that I was saying it was a moral equivalent between Farrakhan and uh, Coke and Rupert. And it wasn't mm-hmm. about that. It wasn't about that. That wasn't so the you point were not I was making. making. That no, I was saying, yeah, everybody meets with those people. Right. But you can't associate yourself with their values mm-hmm. if their values are about hate. And right. that's what she was not as good about doing with Farrakhan. But she's new. She's young. She's growing. Mm-hmm. And um, hopefully she's learned a lesson. Well, let's talk about that idea of, uh, we have a lot of things to talk about. Valerie just recently joined the board of Lyft. Um, she's on the board of another internet company. Um, and we're going to talk a little about tech stuff because it's, and she's been on my podcast, right? I think it was right mm-hmm. after you left, or right before the, right trans- before. Before the transition. Um, let's, let's start by talking about what you're doing now. How, what is it like what being about? Exactly is it what exactly is it you I'm do? Doing you now. do exactly now. A few things. So, yes, I joined the board of Lyft. I'm also on the board of 2U, which is a internet company that's helping uh, provide uh, a platform for universities to offer degrees, um, digital degrees um, online, which is, uh, and the whole point is 2U, it's taking the education to you, and their motto is there's no back row. And so I think a lot of people who wouldn't have access to higher education are now going to have it. And I'm also on the board of Ariel, and uh, my father was one of the first investors there 35 years ago. So mm-hmm. 
It's great to be on that board. I'm helping President Obama with his foundation. And it's, so, it's been so therapeutic for me after leaving the administration to be able to continue doing what I care so much about, and that's helping, I'm looking around this audience, helping young people get civically involved and realize that the world is in your hands and we're counting on you and giving them the tools that they need in order to go forth and change the world. And um, I'm also advising attention, ATTN, mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. I think they're cool and providing content mm -hmm. uh, to help educate people about what's going on in the world. And I'm writing a book. And I'm teaching at the University of Chicago <laughs> Law School. Okay. That's it. <laughs> is this... <laughs> I'm exhausted. Is that all to forget what's going on right yes. now? Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I said therapy, didn't I? I meant it. Okay. I'm like, I've been to, I can't tell you how many different cities. I think I'm in seven cities this week. Yeah. I'm keeping myself at a frenetic pace so that I don't stop and look and see what's going on in the world. So tell us what you think about what's going on. You can't oh ignore Lord. it. Where would we begin? <laughs> the, the glasses I come off. I'm just thinking about it. I started to steam up. Uh -huh. <laughs> well, Okay, so I'd say two things that probably sound opposite. On the one hand, I take the long view, and I know that our democracy has always been messy, and we take two steps forward and one step back. Mm -hmm. I just think that we're in an interesting, scary kind of moment here, and technology has a lot to do with it, the way mm -hmm. information flows so much quicker than it used to. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm nervous. I'm nervous. And I think what gives me hope is seeing those kids and... I'm going to stop calling them kids. Those amazing young people in Parkland. Mm -hmm. That actually gives me hope. Now, you just met with them. I met with a few of them in New York earlier mm -hmm. this week. And they are, they recognize that it's a long road. I mean, they had a good, quick victory in Florida. Mm -hmm. It wasn't everything we would have wanted to keep mm -hmm. guns out of the wrong hands, but it was progress. Mm -hmm. And it definitely would not have happened had it not been for their um, organization and energy and commitment. And the question is, how do we sustain this over time? And you know, they're planning a big march for March 24th all over the country. If you can't make it to DC, join the march in your community. Mm -hmm. It's a show of force. Mm -hmm. But we know you have to convert that show of force into action, which has to be sustained. And to the degree we can help them do that, we want to. Right. But I will tell you, they, they're out, they figured it out. They figured out the code. Right. They, so, so the first part, you're optimistic about the long view. I'm very optimistic about the long view if, if, and it's a big if, we can keep this level of civic engagement. Mm -hmm. So part of why I love spending time on the Obama Foundation is it is committed to helping this ge next generation appreciate the fact that our country, our government, is only going to be as good as we insist that it be. Mm -hmm. And how we put pressure and how we do what we can do as individuals is really what's going to depend whether or not my optimism is merited. So what's your second part? My second part You what? said you had two parts. One well, was the, the first part is that optimism. The second part is I'm terrified. All right, tell us just about terrified. the terrified part. Just terrified every single day. <laughs> All right, well, I'll put it to you this way. Because you've been in that Oval Office. That's my point. That's okay. why I'm terrified. <laughs> well, I'll tell you what worked for us. Uh, and that's really all I will tell you, is, is that uh, we tried very hard recognizing that the leader of the free world uh, needs to be disciplined, have a team around him that is um, sharp, and you have structure and organization. And I mean, everything that went to President Obama had been reviewed by our entire team. We gave him memos in writing, lengthy memos the night before, which he read before he uh, came down to the office the next day. And then we debated them and then he made decisions. 
And I think given the magnitude of the challenges and the complexity of what's facing, not just the United States, but leader of the free world means leader of the free world, mm -hmm. I think that discipline is really important. Mm -hmm. And so right now it's, it's, it would appear from the outside to be a tad bit chaotic, wouldn't you say? Mm -hmm. yeah. So like, what does that mean? How does that translate inside there? Because you're one of I don't know. I don't I can't even imagine, really honestly, what that must be like inside. They, my my stomach hurts just imagining how tense it must feel um, on that team. Because it, it, it's disorderly. You don't know what's gonna happen from one moment to the next. Right. Is there something good about that? He, he's saying he's done things presidents wouldn't have done, like talk to Kim uh, or, or done whatever. Well, what I said about that the other day, uh, which didn't get as much pickup as my first mm -hmm. comment, was, mm -hmm. uh, look, I think we should all prefer diplomacy to fire and fury, because mm -hmm. fire and fury is scary. Those mm -hmm. words are scary. Mm -hmm. uh, normally, what you would do is make sure that you do a lot of due diligence and you know what your rules of engagement would be, what you were willing to give up, what you were insisting upon. He's trying it a different way. I think it's do I wish his way to be successful so that we all don't have to worry about a nuclear mm -hmm. uh, North Korea? Well, sure, we all mm -hmm. should want that. Mm -hmm. it, it wouldn't have been the approach that we would do. So we'll see, I guess, is the answer to your question. It's too early to tell whether or not it'll work. Right. So but when you talk about that, and then we're going to move on politics, when you talk about that having been inside this organization, what what are the problems that could, it's just, just flat seat of your pants, or what, what, is the, what is the danger? What is, besides the nuclear button part? Which is the sense obvious. of chaos mm -hmm. is destabilizing to everyone, not just us, the American people, but the world. As you travel, as I know you have, and I mm -hmm. certainly have, people are wringing their hands because it's not what they're used to from the United States. Mm -hmm. They're used to us being, you know, the measured adult in the room, right? Right. And so it appears chaotic and mm -hmm. people don't know what to think. Mm -hmm. And so then they don't know whether they can rely on us because mm -hmm. we seem to be in, you know, all kind of all over the place. And so if they can't rely on us, then that means when we ask them to do things, will they do them? Mm -hmm. And we have to ask them, maybe we were talking backstage about Ebola. Part of the reason why we didn't have a pandemic of Ebola is that the United States led our allies with our military to contain it. Mm -hmm. That takes goodwill. Right. People have to have confidence that if you say you're going to do X and they do Y, that you will do X if mm -hmm. they do Y. Mm -hmm. That's leadership, right? And so the question that we don't know the answer to, which causes me some anxiety, is what will, what will happen if people can't rely on us the way they always have? In a crisis like an Ebola in a crisis. In a crisis of any kind. Of any kind. And Ebola specifically, they had a very robust science group at the White House that was leading it. We had a very you robust. Had one, yes. We did. We yeah. had a very robust science. President Obama, some of his most favorite times were meeting, was when he met with his outside and inside science advisors. He kept saying, they're logical. They actually like research and they right. like evidence. And then they tell you things based on evidence and research. So that's how we rolled. Right. And without yes. it? Pardon me? Without you, it having, I, because there you, isn't a science. Is advisor. there anybody there working not anybody in the working. science? No. In OSTP, as no. we called it? There's no head of oh. OSTP. That's a problem. That's a problem. Okay. Problem. All right. So, um, so one of the things you guys had pushed was uh, you did a report on AI. You did a report on jobs, on STEM, on uh, coding, the importance of coding. And I know just this week, Wyoming is now requiring its students. Or the, the is schools. everybody hear that news? Yes. 
Pre-K through 12th grade, every year you got to have computer science. Why? Because you need it. Right, exactly. Which is really exciting, I think. And I mean, part of what we did, and Megan was a huge part of this when she was in the White House, Megan Smith, is starting with young um, folks and girls in particular, Mm -hmm. what can we do to make it interesting and exciting? How do we teach it in a way that people see the value of computer science? How do we change the curriculums, encourage people in, and I say we, I mean the collective we, in universities, so whether it's University of Maryland, Baltimore, or Harvey Mudd, changed their curriculum, and now their number of women who are enrolled in computer science has gone way up. What do we do in the workplace to both attract and retain women and people of color? And, you know, in computer science, they stay, women stay three years. Right. Well, that has to change, and it's, and it's a whole bunch of stuff, including, like, paid leave and equal pay and paid sick days and workplace flexibility and affordable childcare. And a lot of the tech companies might do that, but it's also culture. Mm-hmm. And that starts at the top. And what are we going to do to create an inclusive culture where people appreciate that to be globally competitive, mm-hmm. you need to have people who don't think just like you do surrounding you. Right, right, which was one of the pushes around in the Obama administration, the idea. Now it's moved to the states. It seems like that's where it's, you well, know, it's happening in Wyoming. You know, I know. There's lots of states. There are increasingly numbers of states that are beginning to appreciate the fact that they want to have a workforce that's going to be employable. Mm-hmm. And so you can't necessarily now rely on the federal government to do anything. And it's mm-hmm. appropriate that a lot of that action happen at the state and also happen within companies. I mean, I'm really proud of the fact that Lyft has a 18-month maternity leave and paternity leave, men and women treated equally. You can take mm-hmm. three months of leave that's not for, paid mm-hmm. leave that's not for um, the birth of a newborn. Uh, they're working really hard to figure out how to attract and retain a diverse workforce, doing implicit bias training for people who are doing the interviews so that mm-hmm. you make sure that you're objective and you're and you are um, not you're not biased in the interviewing process, making sure that diversity is a part of the culture of the company. Mm-hmm. And that requires the people at the very top to embrace it. And um, and it can't be done by government alone. You need the private sector. The private sector. But in that, in, in, in doing that is the government has always been part of job changing and job training. And now job training is almost negligible by the federal government. And these issues that are coming up, AI, robotics, automation, um, self-driving, all have implications on jobs. Yes, they do. And we already, though, though, as you know, have a large number of tech jobs that are going unfilled. And so, I mean, one thing I'm very excited about is there's now an umbrella organization made up of about 450 entities that are working on everything from computer science for all, um, tech hire, they're traveling around the country, they've been to 70 cities really focusing on and generating interest in doing kind of a boot camp for technology. Um, there is an initiative also as well called Jobs um, that where they're going around, literally going around the country and doing marriages between mm-hmm. companies, employers, and talent. Mm-hmm. Uh, because if you don't see the talent, you don't know that it's there, how are you going to hire it? And they're helping mentor people so that they can apply for jobs. So at the same time as we might be disappointed in the federal government, we also have to recognize we're going to have to do what we can do. And to have, I mean, so for example, one good example would be um, the Girl Scouts, they're working with um, ages sixth grade through senior year in high school on both coding uh, as well as cybersecurity and mm-hmm. trying to get young girls interested in those fields. So it has always been a combination, uh, care of government, 
the private sector and civil society, and we're going to have to rely on government other than the federal government. But that doesn't mean we should let them off the hook. Right. And I think we still have to continue to put pressure on Congress uh, and the administration to step up on this. We're going to take a quick break now for a word from our sponsors. We'll return to this live interview from South by Southwest 2018 in a minute. Today's show is brought to you by Freshly. Meal kits are so last year. Freshly is the new way to get dinner on the table in no time. Their chefs send you delicious, freshly prepared meals so you can eat better without any of the work. No cooking or cleanup required. Their meals are delivered to your door fresh and ready whenever you are. Just heat them up when you're hungry. My sons ate everything Freshly sent to our house and they loved it. I did not actually get a bite because they ate it all. Freshly chefs and nutritionists make sure that every meal is all natural, nutritious, and made with high quality ingredients. So now you can come home late and still have a delicious chef-cooked meal waiting for you. Just choose from the rotating menu of 30 options. Try Freshly and you'll see what it's like to put zero effort into making dinner. Go to Freshly.com slash decode and get $25 off your first order of six meals. That's $25 off plus free shipping at Freshly.com slash decode. Today's show is brought to you by European Wax Center. They want to tell you about pink tax, an unfair tax on goods and services that are marketed to women. As a result, every year women pay more than $1,300 more than men for the exact same things. Women's basic clothing, like white t-shirts and jeans, cost more 40% of the time. Women's personal items, like deodorants and razors, cost more 56% of the time. European Wax Center wants all women to feel that they can be confident in their own skin and confident in demanding a level playing field. Go to axthepinktax.com. That's A-X with just an A-X and not an E at the end. One more time, that's axthepinktax.com to learn more and see how you can help raise awareness about this important issue that affects all women. So let's talk about the dysfunctional political system, which I think it's... That makes it me sad. Yeah, it does. But does it just come as a surprise to you? Because here was, uh, you know, President Obama was brought in on this hopeful wave that shifted so dramatically. How do you, having done all that work, what is that like? And then I do want to get into some of the stuff that's caused it, social media, all kinds of stuff, and the, the inability of the government to recognize what the Russians were doing all that time. So let's first talk about how you look at the dysfunction after years of sort of uplift in a lot of ways. Well, it was uplifting, but I have to tell you, since the first day we walked into the White House, the Republicans made their decision that they wanted to try to stop any progress at all. And when I think about it now, I mean, I, what I probably underestimated was how wedded to the so, to the status quo they were. Mm-hmm. And a lot of that's driven by special interest groups. I mean, if you look at the work, which there was nothing more profoundly disappointing to me in eight years than Congress's unwillingness to just pass the most simple law to close the loopholes on background checks. Mm-hmm. Why would you want anybody who shouldn't have a gun, who's a threat to themselves or to anyone else, mm-hmm. to have one? 32,000 people die every year. Two-thirds commit suicide from gun violence. It was just the simplest thing, but it was a good example of where, because the NRA is so powerful in how it funds members and how it looks at every single vote and will cut off that funding and run somebody against them if they would have, for example, have supported the background checks, that you have to have a counterforce to that. 
And that without that counterforce, that is not just, I mean, the Sandy Hook parents spent a lot of time on Capitol Hill lobbying. And when one of them told me, they asked um, a Republican, why didn't you vote for it? And they said, yeah, we know the American people want it, but they don't want it like it's their number one issue. Mm-hmm. Whereas the NRA will take our funding away if mm-hmm. we don't do this. Mm-hmm. Oh, and so, so I say all this as background to say, let's not say it was all peaches and you know roses while we were there. It right. wasn't. Right. But we really tried to continue to have a united front to push Congress to work with the uh, governors and the mayors and pass laws around the country, paid leave, paid sick days. Lots of cities and states have passed laws for those two, for example. Um, and then work for, with the private sector and the, and the not-for-profit society. But were you surprised by the backlash Cause, or what, the, what, what Donald Trump managed to pull together in terms of mood and tone and frustration and anger? Yes. I was caught very surprised. I was very surprised. And because? That, well, because I thought that a country that elected Barack Obama twice would probably not elect Donald Trump. Um, but then... I keep in mind that 43% of the eligible voters did not vote in the election. Mm -hmm. And so when 43% sit on the sidelines, that to me is a more concerning question. Like, what can we do to get people to appreciate that their minimum responsibility of being a citizen in this great country is to vote? And then let's go from there. And so part of what I'm excited about now is, um, so for example, on the March of the 24th, the big part of it is going to be voter registration in every city. I mean, these young people have figured out it's not enough to just march. You have to vote as well. And so that gives me reason. You see, I keep coming back to my optimism because otherwise I go into a dark place and I don't want to go there. Right. I really want to. But what did you learn from reflecting on it? Like, because you have to not just say, oh, there are a bunch of racists, a bunch of idiots. There's no, something no, at the no. heart of it. There's economic disruption. There's. I think there was a lot going on. <coughs> I think there was there are a lot of people who legitimately just wanted to shake up the status quo because they're suffering, and they they just wanted to do that. I think a lot of people, as I said, didn't vote. A lot of people may have thought that it didn't matter, that their vote didn't matter. And it's probably that latter group that I really want to help them understand, yeah, your vote really does matter. Mm -hmm. And I think there has been an awakening. Look at the Women's March that we had the day after the inauguration Mm -hmm. um, and look at the energy we're seeing right now. So I think that, and as I've traveled around the country, I've met so many people and women in particular who want to run for office. Mm -hmm. And I always say we would be far better off if we had more women in elected office than we do right now. So I think, again, I keep focusing on the positive because right. what, I can't what, what, do anything I'm about the negative. I'm curious about what lesson you learn from it, because, again, you can't, you can't fully dismiss the feelings. Right? Oh, I don't dismiss the feelings at all. Do you think you missed something, or did you all feel like too elite, too... Because I remember being with a bunch of Washington reporters and early on when Trump announced, and I have relatives in different parts of the country who liked him, who had a, what he was saying was reaching them. And some of it, what he was saying, I was like, oh, he's kind of right about people feeling left out. He's kind of right. And the reporters, which was really interesting, was like, oh, he's a clown carrier. He's not going to make anything. The Republican Party's not going to let him. That was what they kept saying. They're not going to allow it. I said, well, I, who's not going to elect I him? I think and, that I think, and this gets back to technology. Mm-hmm that the traditional norms for how party politics work are changing. But let's hasten to say, Hillary Clinton did win the majority of the vote. Mm -hmm. She lost by not that much, so it was a close election. And our elections tend to be close because our country 
is divided. Even when Barack Obama won twice, it's not like it was by a huge, huge margin. Mm -hmm. So I think everybody always knew it would be close, but we thought it would tilt on the side of, of her winning. Mm -hmm. That doesn't discount the anger at all. I travel and I talk to a lot of these people who are who are suffering. And as the income gap between the very wealthy the grows, that frustration turns to desperation. Right. And so when you're going into the next elections, are you are you very involved in politics now or is it that's at nothing? the moment I'm catching my breath. Okay. I, I will get back involved, I'm right. sure. Right. So what would be the key things in terms of the next the midterms? What are the messaging that, that the that the Democrats at least have to have to at least return? Or well, should they I, not be Democrat? Should it just be well, another party? Look, should I think oh, look, I'm a de Democrat. I think we go back to our core values. We are about inclusion. We're about giving everybody a chance for opportunity. We're about a big tent where there's room for everyone. I think we cut against this sense of us being an isolationist and that we recognize that we're a part of the world and there are huge markets outside of our shores and we ought to embrace that opportunity that we may be a great country, but we're not the only country on earth and that we can learn a lot from people um, from all over the world. And part of what has made this nation strong is our commitment to immigration. I mean, you, as you well know, you look at the folks who have invented these amazing companies in the last 20 and 30 years, and many of them have been immigrants. A lot of them. And so I say we embrace all of that. And that, and that, that is a tent where we should be growing the pie, not carving up the pieces more or moving decks on the, on the do you ship. Think the, do you think the Democratic Party's gotten that message? I do. And yet, we still have Bernie it's, Sanders, Joe Biden, the same characters. Well, I, well, as for 2020, I think it's too early to tell. We're talking about the midterms, midterms right. which are coming up right now. And I think we've got, you know, around the country, some good people who are running and a real opportunity there. I think, uh, as for 2020, I think it'll emerge over time. We don't, mm -hmm. we don't necessarily know who's going to emerge today. Right. And I think, uh, again, people who get engaged and support candidates, and work for those candidates. One of the things that I learned uh, in 08 and then again in 12, it's really hard to run a presidential campaign. You need a lot of people on the ground making yeah. huge sacrifices who are committed to right. your vision for America. Right. I think with young people in our town, we win. Right. If so, they're engaged. So, so having run a successful campaign with a candidate who wasn't known early on, and you picked the right one, you backed the right one. I did. Okay. I'm very um, proud of that. Yeah. Uh, who, who, who would you back now? It's too soon for me to tell you, and right. I'll tell you why I say it's too soon. Right. What because, does that candidate look like? What well, let me tell you what Barack Obama did, which is why I think the underdog in that case won. He said, I have to earn every single vote, which means... I have to lift up my hood and let people kick my tires and get to know me. Mm -hmm. And one of the um, advantages of being the underdog is that you do know you got to get out there. And mm -hmm. so he spent a lot of time in Iowa. And when we lost New Hampshire, which was just gut-wrenching at the time, but it probably was a really good thing because it forced him into a protracted primary election, which took him all over the country. Mm -hmm. And humbly and uh, with great humility, he introduced himself over and over and over and over again to the American people. And I think what they picked up in him was the authenticity. Mm -hmm. They felt like at the end they knew him mm -hmm. and that they could count on him to keep them safe and, and look out for them. Right. 
I think that message still works. And mm -hmm. so the person, that's the type of person I'm looking for. Someone where in this country where, you know, my family lives and I am and I love and has been very good to me that I know that my grandchildren and my great grandchildren will be better off as a result of that person's leadership. Right. That's what I want. So how is how are they doing? They seem like they're having a ball. The Obamas? Yeah. They're good. Yeah. They're good. They're good. <laughs> like, they're good. Yeah. I think they're good. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, let's let's put it this way. They're good personally. Yeah. I think it's hard. People always say, well, oh, isn't this so hard for you to watch? No, because it was not about us. It's it's no harder for us. And it, it's much harder on people who are worrying if they're going to lose their health insurance. Or now, that's really being hard. Deported or, or the kids or the adults who are worried about being deported. So... You know, what we're going through pales in comparison to that. Mm -hmm. um, but they are also young, fortunately, and have mm -hmm. a, you know, couple chapters left in their life. And this foundation is going to be an opportunity for both of them to roll up their sleeves and get to work and continue to be a force for good and to help groom the next generation of leaders. And I think they both feel very strongly that our country needs to have multiple people just like Barack mm -hmm. Obama. Mm -hmm. We can't put all of our eggs in one basket and expect uh, miracles to happen. We yeah. need to have a grassroots of leaders all across the country. And yeah, true, but they're so cool. They keep they're cool. very cool. <laughs> they're, they, Particularly they, they, when like, he puts on those sunglasses <laughs> or she's dancing with a two-year-old. Yeah. I mean, they're cool. They're they know so cool. they're cool. They know they're cool. They are just, you know what, they're cool because you feel like I could hang out with you. You're, right. you're normal. I mean, yeah. part of why I was so happy to see Mrs. Obama meet with that two-year-old is that the two-year-old was looking up to her as a queen. Mm -hmm. And what Mrs. Obama wanted her to see was like, I'm just like your mom. Right. I got kids, you know. I still remember what it was like to have young kids in the hopes that you couldn't be what you can see. Mm -hmm. And I think for both the president and the first lady, um, there are, I, I shouldn't say, President Obama and Mrs. Obama are role models for all children, not just black children, all mm -hmm. children, about what a healthy family looks like, what people do when they love each other and respect each other, how you can raise your children in a really mm -hmm. abnormal environment and have them turn out to be really yeah. great kids. And so oh, I we think we miss the healthy family. We do. I do. I think they're but they're still there, and they're yeah. and we have to just look other places. Yeah. To find. Are they going to be different ex president? Ex president. Di different presidents do different things. Do you see much more on the on the national scene outspoken or? Well, as you've seen so far, so far President not. Obama has been very measured mm -hmm. um, and has given a lot of space to his successor. I think what he wants to do is. Um, we don't see him out there leading the opposition. Right. Um, he's he's much more comfortable in the space of doing something positive. So he would rather help, um, you know, aspire boys and young men of color to get the same opportunity as every other child and work with a group of them and mentor them and see them go out and change the world or to have a training days the way we've had in Chicago mm -hmm. now a couple of times with folks from all over the country and then the summer we had with people from all over the world who come who came to Chicago and uh, shared best practices for how right. I always call it ordinary people doing extraordinary things. <laughs> That's where their head is. And then mm -hmm. they're both also writing books, which I think will be Everyone's an important part of history. Everybody's, yeah, everybody's writing, writing a book. book. Yeah, you all <laughs> book countries. Got a lot so to say. Let's talk about uh, social media, and then we'll get some questions, social right. media, because we talked about that backstage. 
Do you think the Obama administration did enough to understand what was going on with Russia and then the tech companies like go through? Look, I will say, let me back up from the question mm -hmm. and say we are in the middle of a revolution. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is the technology revolution is like no revolution we've ever seen before in our country. I still Which remember you guys used to great effect. We did. But I will confess to you, I remember President Obama was in office when he asked me what I knew about Twitter. Mm -hmm. And I said, you mean like all of Twitter? Mm -hmm. I mean, so that was in 2008. Yeah. I mean, I had no idea what he was talking about. Um, and so look where we are today, right? right? And so a lot happened in eight years. We were on the front end of that wave going into it. Right. And But I will say, it, you were in this, um, I think we got kind of so focused, particularly early on, um, Carl, with the, with the work mm -hmm. and the policy and getting mm -hmm. it right. I mean, remember... We were in the middle of the worst economic crisis of our lifetime, not since the Great Depression, and trying to get that ship back in order. So you didn't have time to we, say... We didn't tell the story right, as right. much as we should have, and so therefore we were not as adept at using the technology. And you, know, you have the White House briefing room with the traditional sources of, mm -hmm. of press, and, and as time went on, we learned more effectively. So yes, we spoke to them, but we also had President Obama meet with the YouTube celebrities, mm -hmm. and they came in and advised him on how to mm -hmm. communicate. And okay. you know, some of them have followings that were, at that point, bigger than his. Mm -hmm. And they're mm -hmm. 19 years old. And he right. said, well, how'd you do it? Mm -hmm. And we really listened and learned. And so I think we got better at it as time went on. I really don't want to say too much about Russia because uh, there are other people who are obviously spending a lot of time looking at Russia right now. But I think that in retrospect, you make the, de the best decisions you can with the information you have. And we used to always, used to say to us all the time, when are you going to bring me the easy decisions? And we go, <laughs> oh, no, we, we took care of those. You know, <laughs> yeah. We yeah. never bring you that. We take right. care of that. You get the tough ones where yeah. it's judgment and you make judgment calls every single mm -hmm. day. And with the benefit of hindsight, we would all maybe do things um, differently in our life. But you, I, I feel confident that based on what he knew, when he knew it, he made the best decisions he could. Right. Was it on? A, was it was there great awareness of it or just a vague awareness that they were? In some places, there was greater awareness than others. Right. Right. And but certainly we've learned a lot more so since what then. Now, we what, have. what what should happen now? Because the federal government is not really engaging on it. The White House is absolutely not engaging on it. Uh, senators, various, there's well, the Senate committee. And they passed a law and mm -hmm. that law has not been um, implemented and it should be. The and I think, yes, I think that Congress needs to uh, pay more attention to the implementation of the laws that they pass. Well, they can't implement them. The White House has to correct. But they can. They can, they have oversight authority. They could mm -hmm. do stuff. Mm -hmm. They could get more engaged if they want to. What? We should be very worried about another country meddling in our elections. Yeah, and worried. it has nothing to do with the outcome. It has mm -hmm. to do with the meddling. Mm -hmm. Keep out of our elections. Right. And we should be, and as you heard our intelligence community saying, we haven't been directed to do so and we can't without that direction. Right. Why wouldn't we want them out of our election? So who, where does the, elections. Where does the fault lie? Is it the tech companies? Because you all were close to the Connect Company. I mean, they were big fans of the Obama administration. Look, uh, I think, did the t were the tech companies aware of everything that was going on as they have grown larger and larger and larger? Well, of course not. Mm -hmm. So they're going through a growing pain as well. They mm -hmm. have to, they're trying to figure out what's happening with how are their tools being used as a force for evil. Mm -hmm. And fixing that, I don't know that you would have a better idea how to fix that than mm -hmm. I would. Mm -hmm. uh, but we have to, it should be a united front of the private sector and government saying, 
what could be more key to our democracy than preserving the uh, integrity of our voting? And we should be all really dedicated to that. Right. Would you as a Democrat be tougher on tech companies now? Because a lot of them are now. All of a sudden, the Democrats are sort of anti-tech or more. Well, I don't think it's anti-tech. I think tech is an incredible tool for good. Mm -hmm. And I think we all, it isn't, I'm not anti-tech at all. I want to figure out how to make tech stay as good of a tool for good as it can and not, and do no harm. And, or do as little harm as possible. And what do you expect will happen to them? I don't know. You don't know? I don't know. I think it'll be interesting. I don't know whether Congress will step in or whether... The, I know, obviously, they're taking a hard look at their internal mm-hmm. um, procedures and policies and seeing what they can do. I'm sure this wasn't an outcome that they would have wanted. So No, but... Um, but normally, government regulates when there are threats. Right. And do you anticipate that or do I, you, I, you don't know? I gave up predicting Congress a long time ago. Right. Right. Okay. Um, so we're going to take some questions from the audience, but I want to talk, Leslie, about the Me Too movement. Um, yes. So good. good. So how do you look at this? You've been a strong woman in office. There's Look, uh, I'm old enough to remember um, when I first started practicing law that a certain amount of abuse was just a given. And we just... Meaning what? What happened to you? Well, just, I mean, not just me, people around me, just lewd comments or how you looked or just um, inappropriate jokes. Mm -hmm. And honestly, I think uh, my generation of women, we were trying to prove that we could be just like the guys and we wouldn't be offended and we could, Mm -hmm. we put up with a lot of stuff we shouldn't have put up with. Mm -hmm. And so I think it is terrific to see the show of force and the camaraderie and support that women are showing women and that men are showing women who are coming out and talking about something as horrendously traumatic as sexual harassment Mm -hmm. and the long-term effects that it can have on people. Um, And it it takes a lot of courage to come forward Mm -hmm. when that first person and second person and third person, and as you've seen this, people have come out over time, even months later, people finally say, okay, I now have the strength to do this. Mm-hmm. And I think it's, I think that that is great and we ought to be supporting that movement and we ought to be looking at ways in which we can create a work culture, well, let me go bigger, a society that's free of sexual harassment where everybody's treated equally. Mm-hmm. And that means don't touch me if I didn't invite you to touch me. Mm-hmm. It's just not that complicated. And so when people talk about the backlash, I'm like, that's an excuse for just continuing to mm-hmm. not respect women. You Why don't do you to... imagine there is that backlash? Pardon me? Why do you imagine there is that backlash? I think it's an excuse. I think men men can conveniently say, oh, well, I can't travel with a woman now, I guess. Well, yes, you can. Mm-hmm. Just, you know, don't go into her room at night and don't harass her. Right. It's yeah. not that complicated. Right, right. Right? Yeah. I think so. You I can, feel. Yes, you can be alone with a woman. Yeah, yeah. Just stay in your chair and yeah. she'll stay in her chair. You know the expression, right? Mike pensing it? You have to Mike. I hadn't heard that expression, but I know exactly what it means. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm quick. I'm quick. Quick. Right. Yeah. But, the, but to the broader point, and so Me Too and Time's Up, which I think is also very important, mm-hmm. where um, this isn't just about really famous women coming forward, but it's the factory worker who has no voice and no mm-hmm. ability to pay for her defense. And so raising funds to help those women is very important. And I should mention that uh, May 5th and 6th in Los Angeles, 
Um, Tina Chun and I are convening a summit called the United State of Women. Right. We had one back in 2016. It, it was very successful. We had yeah. 5,000 folks from around the country and the world Super come cool in. Super cool ads you had. Very cool ads. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, and it was obviously people participated digitally as well. So we decided to do this one in L.A. It's a diverse city with where culture uh, meets business, and we thought it important to have it on a different coast than the one we had last time. And we're inviting people to come in and share best practices again. We're going to put a spotlight on stories that we have heard as we've traveled around the country where people are figuring out, well, how do you close, how do you close the pay gap? What are the nuts and bolts for how a company that's interested in doing that would do it? How do you, what is the appropriate basket of paid leave and paid sick days and workplace it's flexibility? It's got to move beyond sexual harassment. Like, it's the whole package of how are we, see, I look at it this way. Yes, it's important that women are protected. Full stop. Next sentence. It is also a business imperative if you want to attract and retain the best talent you can to have values and policies that are consistent with the 21st century worker. Mm -hmm. And people can now work anywhere they want to in the world. And how are you going to compete for talent? And if you don't recognize the fact that people have lives and they get sick and their parents get old and they have babies and, mm -hmm. and they shouldn't have to worry about being intimidated in the workplace, if you build that kind of culture, you will be more productive, more efficient, you'll have less turnover, and in the private sector, you will make more money. Mm -hmm. And so I'm about making that case, because I think it is more sustainable than just only saying it's the right thing to do. Mm -hmm. I think there's a business imperative for it as well. Okay, so the United States of Women, last thing I want to ask you about is is the things like Charlottesville and racism, because that gets, you just mentioned, that uh, especially uh, a lot of the hotel workers, women of color, more than white women, a lot of the complaints around all this has been it's too focused on wealthy white women, essentially. When you look out at some of the stuff that's come out, the racial remarks, the things around the president, the enablers around him that didn't leave when they might have, um, you know, you were there. What, what goes into those calculations? From, and how did you feel when oh, you saw... Oh, I, I don't have any idea what went into his calculations or the right. people around him. I can only tell you, you know, we um, went to great lengths to be very clear about hate mm -hmm. and to say that doesn't reflect our values yeah. and that there's no place in our administration or our circle for um, for those values. Right. But having been... when you, having, you just said, you know, that this country which elected... Barack Obama twice, mm -hmm. then to see that as a person of color yourself, what, what was that to see? Well, it's very painful. Yeah. Obviously, very painful. So what is the anecdote to, anecdote to that? Well, you know, I think we have to be more inclusive and people have to, and I've been actually spending a lot of time trying to think this through because part of how technology gets in the way now you see for it. this goal that I see is, look, when I was growing up, it's a pretty young audience. I listened to Walter Cronkite. Mm -hmm. Whatever he said was true. And he said it once a day on the mm -hmm. evening news. And his staff had all day to figure out the truth. And there was only one time where he separated fact from editorial. And it was about Vietnam. And it was ground shaking when he did it because he never did it. And then you had entertainment. News also used to be the loss leader. Mm -hmm. Now news makes money, and which means it goes into entertainment much more so. And then you add to that these devices that we're also addicted to, and you 
source on your device, you decide what comes in and it comes in from your circle. And so what do we do to get outside of that small little echo chamber that is getting tighter and tighter and tighter and actually talk to people with whom we disagree, with whom we have different life experiences and actually hear them and empathize with them and try to imagine what life for them is like. And so I think part of what we saw, for example, why you saw such a diverse group of people come out after Laquan McDonald's murder in Chicago is, is that I think it was jolting to a lot of people to learn that black people might be treated differently by some police hmm. than white people. I had people in my office come up to me and say, I had no idea that there was a talk that black families gave their sons. Mm -hmm. That's second nature in my household. Mm -hmm. We all had that talk. Mm -hmm. Even though I wasn't a, a boy, I was in the room when that talk was happening. Mm -hmm. When you see a person shot in the back 16 times, it's, it's searing and you have no choice but to feel empathy. Mm -hmm. And so how do we allow ourselves to feel that empathy without a tragedy happening? How can we just... Um, well, as do you imagine would, it would happen with these devices? They're addictive, they're... Well, this is what I'm worried about is how can we... Where I'm, I'm interested in, I shouldn't just say worried, how can we use those devices uh, to be a opportunity for that kind of a conversation? And the, the problem is, and look, just look at my Twitter feed, and you see it, people say things on social media that you would never say to somebody's face, yeah, right? You got, you got some ugliness this week. You well, I, you know what? And so you, some of it you read and some of it you tune out, um, but but it's scary out there and, and, and it prevents people from, I mean, the stakes are so high if you say one thing that's ever slightly misunderstood, you get this huge backlash. And um, so the question is, how do you use it as a force for good? And mm -hmm. I, relying on you young people to figure, and you figure this out too. No, I no. don't I don't know the answer to that, but I'm worrying that it is helping pull us further and further apart. People who look at MSNBC don't watch Fox and vice versa. And so what do we do to, on our own, facilitate mm -hmm. those opportunities for a better understanding? Mm -hmm. I mean, we're a diverse, richly diverse country. I call it richly diverse. Mm -hmm. That's a strength. Mm -hmm. And we're, we're turning it into a weakness. Mm -hmm. We're going to take another break for a word from our sponsors. We'll return to this live interview from South by Southwest after this. This episode is brought to you by MParticle, the customer data platform for every screen. And I'm here with co-founder and CEO Michael Katz. We know that uh, people are using mobile to research and transact more than ever before, which we've talked about. Um, what's the future of mobile commerce and how does MParticle help its retailer customers like Overstock, Lily Pulitzer, and Jet.com? So the classic notion of a person moving through the funnel is fundamentally broken. Mm -hmm. People may start researching a company's product on their laptop, subscribe to that brand's email newsletter a few days later, get an email which they open on their phone, download the app and complete the purchase. You know, so right there, just trying to map the customer journey, you need to capture data from four or five systems. So brands need to create uh, consistent and personalized experiences across all these devices and systems. And so it starts with having a data platform that was built to ingest data from anywhere, mm -hmm. create a unified view of the customer, 
and then in real time sync that data out to all the various marketing and analytics tools that the company may use in order to create these experiences. So people are doing very different things all the time. Absolutely. Dynamic as they are using all these devices. For sure. Thank you, Mike Katz of MParticle. Where can we learn more about what you're doing? Go to www.mparticle.com or follow us on Twitter at mparticles with an S. Ah, thank you so much. Thanks. Questions from the audience? Right here? In tell, me wh- your, tell me your name. My name is Anseline Hoya. Hi, Anseline. Hi. In what ways do you think things would have been different if the Democratic presidential candidate had been Bernie Sanders? Oh, that's good. <laughs> you know, I don't have a crystal ball. I, I, have, I really have no idea. Um, I don't know. It's an interesting question. I, I, the thing that I try not to do because it makes me crazy is to wonder what if. And there are lots of what ifs that might have led us to a different place. I think the, the more important question is, what do we do now going forward? How do we build a coalition of the willing that believes in the values that Bernie and Hillary believed in and Barack Obama believed in? How do we make that big tent where those three leaders all fit really comfortably? Because I think the bigger the tent, the more powerful the tent. And that means that we have to also give ourselves some freedoms within that tent to differ on some issues. We don't have to be 100% in agreement with one another on everything. What do you think everything. he tapped into, though? There was something deep for the... It's, uh, it's very similar to Trump in a lot of ways. The dissatisfaction, uh, the system's rigged, the... Yeah, I, yeah. He did tap into something, and I think, particularly with young people, mm-hmm. he really did. He... Uh, I, well, you tell me. You were a Bernie su- supporter? I was both, or I am still both, Mm-hmm. What was it about Bernie that you found attractive? Oh, I like this. We're turning the tables. <laughs> One of the things that I found attractive about Bernie Sanders is how liberal or progressive he is. Yes, that's true. And that is attractive. But I will say one of my big things now is I think we should have mandatory voting. It's never going to happen, but it's my fantasy which I get to have now. And the reason why is I think if everybody votes, the country actually comes a little bit closer to the middle. And yes, Bernie, very progressive, liberal values. But the question you have to ask yourself is, if he had been elected, would that have translated into getting anything done? And I think it's, I, you can't let perfect be the enemy of the good. And compromise is the nature of the beast. And the question I just would say is that I I encourage us going forward to find a candidate who will compromise to get things done, not the values, not your core values at all, not your core beliefs, but, but would realize that there is another half of the country out there. And we have to make sure that we're at least trying to figure out how to get them um, some of what will make them feel better. No, I don't think we should compromise on things like keeping guns out of the wrong hands, but surely there must be matters where there's a line and there are other matters where there's wiggle room. And I think we're getting so that we're not good on the wiggle room. And that's that's a problem. Right, next question. Thank you. Um, hi, I'm hi. Alyssa. Hi, Alyssa. Uh, you have had, and obviously continue to have, a very successful career uh, related to the law and public policy. And I wonder what advice you have for young women who are interested in those areas, and in particular, young women who are um, planning to run for office? Well, you are a dream come true because, and I'll tell you why, because 
about uh, two years ago, my daughter, who's now in journalism, but at the time was a lawyer, interviewed me. And she, the first question she asked me is, what would you tell a 30-year-old Valerie Jarrett? And that's what my book is going to be about. So I just sold the first copy of my book to you. <laughs> you know what? I, I will say this. In, and I, well, I did sell the book to you, so I'm serious about that. But I'll also say this, that I think um, part of where I got tripped up early on is that I really wasn't listening to the quiet voice inside of me. I was listening to my family that was proud because I was the first lawyer in my family. And I was listening to my friends who said, oh, you've got that fancy office in the Sears Tower. And I was kind of going through the motions, but I wasn't really passionate about what I was doing. And it wasn't until I walked away from the corporate law and I walked into City Hall where I, my office was a cubicle face in the alley that I actually found where I belonged. And it was this calling for public service, starting out locally in a city that I love, Chicago, where I just wanted to help make my city better. And I wanted my client to be the city of Chicago and all of the taxpayers in the city of Chicago. And I just felt big doing that. And so part of my advice to young people is, first of all, don't make a 10-year plan like I did, because it was wrong. And I followed it longer than I should have until I kind of, well, anyway, read the book and you'll see what I did in the plan. But, but the most important, you just have to listen to yourself. And it is a quiet, mighty voice if you give it power. And, and also, the good thing about your generation is that your life, I mean, not like, like our grandparents or whatever that went to one place and stayed the same place their entire career. You have multiple chapters. Don't feel like you have to do everything on day one. Yep. And you know, pace yourself. It is a marathon. And the final thing I'll say on this is that people often, and yeah, I know you, can you have it all? And well, not at all at the same time. And you shouldn't expect it because if you think you're having it all, you're probably doing it all. And that's what I tried to do. I tried to make baby food from scratch. I was a single mom. I tried to work till 2 a.m. I tried to be like the perfect everything. Why was I making that baby food? That didn't make any sense. <laughs> I cut the baby food. She's fine. She's fine. I went and bought those little jars. But it, but I had to like drop a thousand balls before I realized that. And so give yourself a little bit of a break and yeah. don't try to be so dark. Why didn't perfect. you run for office? Too old. I like your little hand thing Too now. <laughs> I don't think so. I think I'd much rather help you guys. I mean, there's so many Why didn't you run for office? Did why you why didn't I? Yeah. <sighs> I thought about running for office when I, I really th thought being like mayor of Chicago was the coolest job because I'd worked for three mayors, as it turned out. And if Mayor Daley hadn't run for his last term, I actually thought about it then. And then when President Obama, but he did, so I wasn't going to run against him. He was my mentor. And then when President Obama was elected to the uh, presidency, I thought about putting my hat in the ring for his job, but our governor now is in prison, so I'm glad I didn't do that. Um, <laughs> that could have ended very poorly. Um, and I don't know that I have the fire in my belly at this stage to do it. I would really much rather find some young people here and get behind you and help you not make any mistakes that I made may have made. I think that's the phase right. of my life I'm in right this second. Right. Okay. But if nope. I change my mind. All right. Okay. Let me know. All right. Next question. Uh, she's got right here I, and then there. Okay. And then um, here. Patrick. Hey, and, Patrick. Uh, so right now I'm, I'm just ridiculously inspired by all the political activity I'm seeing, all the people getting involved. 
I'm positive we are going to crush the GOP in 2018, and everything is going to go well as long as this state of terror reigns. Um, but I also worked in the 2010 cycle, and my question for you is, with the virtue of hindsight, what advice do you have to all of the passionate organizers that are lighting fires right now? Um, because lighting fires is hard, but keeping them burning is even harder. Uh, do you have any advice for us on what we can do better this time? Yes. 2010 was terrible. 2000, you know, we kept thinking that President Obama's popularity was transferable. But you can't do it with one person. You have to have, as you said, the energy on the ground. And it's hard. And I, I remember he invited in some of the demonstrators who had been in Ferguson, Missouri, after Michael Brown's death. And they had been out there demonstrating for months. He brought them in the Oval Office. He said, look, it wasn't that long ago I was a community organizer and you're cold and you're knocking on doors and they're slamming the face in your, they're slamming your face in the door. And it is not easy work. And so I think you have to recognize that it is hard and it is the most important thing you'll ever do to fight for your democracy. It is so important that you do it. And if you do do it, a man named Barack Hussein Obama can get elected not once but twice. So crazy things can happen if you do it. And the question is, how do you keep momentum going when it isn't the top of the ticket or it isn't the most inspirational candidate, but it's somebody who will be really competent and good? And I think sometimes we expect too much of our candidates. They need to be honest. They need to have integrity and character and a vision you share. And then you've got to just get out there and do the hard work. And you also have to pace yourself, as I was saying earlier, about being perfect, which means... Don't run so hard that by September you're exhausted because the election's in November. Mm. So pace yourself to get through the election and then go rest and then get ready for the next one. And not just Congress. You should care who is in your state legislatures. Yeah. Right? Yeah. They've drawn these maps in all kinds of crazy ways and Eric Holder is now running a commission yeah. for that. But the real way to do it is what the Republicans started doing 25 years ago, and that is supporting candidates for these what seemingly nondescript roles that are extraordinarily important. Yeah. And so understand up and down the ticket, you have to get involved. Who's on your school board? That's a big deal for how your kids are going to get educated. And I think, unfortunately, we just get seduced by the big things, but it's the little... If, if, if nothing else, we've had a civics lesson, right? I think people thought, well, they didn't have to vote in 10 because Barack Obama was the president. Well, how can Barack Obama get anything done without a Congress with whom he can work? So we've learned that lesson. We've learned, a lo we've learned enough lessons to not let this stuff happen again, right? right. Probably we will. Next uh, question, two more questions, this one and then right here in front. Hi, I'm Tom Luce. Thanks for coming. This is really, this is really informative. Uh, you talked about the core values that you feel like the Democrats need to push on. Obviously, that's the spirit of the party, so that's very important. But, but. as but okay, well. as I, I think I think it's clear enough that the Democrats are also struggling to kind of find their their voice, their messaging voice, because right now we don't know why we're losing so much in so many different ways, except for these, you know, what should be easy you know, elections that were still closely winning, right, in Alabama and elsewhere. Well, Alabama hadn't gone Democrat in a very long time. That's true. And That's they true. have described Democrats down there as being as bad as child molesters. Right. So yeah. that was a that huge victory. A 
please. For another time. Yeah. And that was African American women who just got out there and worked yeah. hard and voted. <laughs> so, I, I feel like, and this is just my thinking. Okay. I, I, right. I can't help but feel as 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 Democrats are trying to find the voice, they were missing the red elephant in the room, which is that I don't think we're doing a very good job of telling those core values through the lens of economics, mm -hmm. both at a macro level and at, a, at an individual level, and why that's good for people, you know, in their checkbooks. No, I think, okay, so, I think so, what he's so saying far. is a lot of, I, would, I, I agree with you, that the Democrats just feel anti-Trump. And, and that's not enough. It's, it's never enough to just be anti something. You have to be for particularly something. Particularly him. People have to be, people emotionally, psychologically have to be for something to sustain it back to the earlier question. And so I think if you don't like the message, develop a message you do like and then go on social media with your message and encourage your friends to support your message. I mean, this is the whole point of Parkland is it's just totally different now. The paradigm is it's really in your hands. You have much more power. You don't have to simply rely on the party leaders. Although I do, I do support our party leaders. Who, I think who is have... the party leader? Well, there isn't one. And, 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 and I liked I your think... face. Your face said a whole lot more than your answer. You had, mm -hmm. Well, we don't have we don't have one. And I yeah. think, in a sense, and you know, to the people who come up to me every day and say, "Why won't Barack Obama be that leader?" Is is it? He fills up so much space in the room, and what he really wants to do is to help you yeah. emerge as a leader, and you emerge as a leader, and you. And, um, and, and that means you do have to take the long view, and you have to recognize there's going to be a period of time where there isn't any one leader. But we're going to have a bunch of leaders. I bet you we have a ton of people running for president, mm -hmm. and we're going to be able to kick their tires and lift up the hood and see yeah, what's there probably 32 of them all right probably. two more questions Malat. two more one here and then right here so right here first because he's had his hand up for longer and then i see you right there uh thank you so much for hosting this has been awesome um one of the questions that i have which is maybe seem may seem a little bit uncomfortable is that you've worked in public policy for a long time whether it's with mayors president obama um but particularly to the office of the president uh, and seeing so many people come through, is there any thread that ties all our previous presidents together? Something which, as speaking to so many Americans, appeals to Americans that somewhat connects Donald Trump to Barack Obama to President Bush to Clinton. Uh, uh, I, I find that sometimes it would so easy to look at it as we're almost two countries battling for this one office. But do you find that there is something similar between all of them? Anything that somewhat connects them all together? Yes, Valerie, what do, what do President Obama and Donald Trump have in common? <laughs> Is there something? Well, I'm always going to find bed. something positive to say. So this is what I would say, really. Um, it doesn't get as much attention as perhaps it should. And um, I can't say that it was as welcomed as maybe I would have liked it to have been in this last transition. But one of the things that... Um, we're very good at doing in this democracy is a smooth transition of power. And don't underestimate how important that is. Yeah. And I always point to President Bush, because that was my experience. I co-chaired President Obama's transition. And President Bush and his team, even though we ran a campaign where we were very critical of almost every policy he had, his, the professionalism and openness and willingness of his team to ensure that when we walked in the door, we were as prepared as we could be, 
I can't speak more highly of what he did. And we tried to do the same thing. I say that I don't feel that they received our, um, our offer as well as we did, because we were anxious to get as much information, because then you, you got to hit the ground running. And I, as, as I have talked to historians, that has been a tradition in our, our country for a very long time. And I think it distinguishes us from um, a lot of other countries that don't have a smooth transition. You, you can fight a big fight in a campaign, and when the campaign is over, and, and the other example that I would give you is that there wasn't a time when we called any of President um, Obama's predecessors and asked something of them where they did not respond immediately. And I think that reflects well. And so far that hasn't happened, but I would like to think if President Trump needed his predecessors, that they would serve our country. Right. It's a small club. They, uh, they, they tend to rise to occasions. That's been my experience. And, I, and that makes me feel really good. Doesn't. So I, I'm curious about that picture, though, you all took well, when the transition was happening. You were right in the front of it. And oh, it the, was that a, was the day after the election. Yeah, I know. Okay. Give me a minute to catch my breath. Okay. <laughs> that was a fantastic picture. But you know what the worst part of that photo for what? me yeah. was? I saw the cameras, and that was like my happy face. That was like <laughs> the best I could do. It's not like they caught me by surprise. I said, oh, here they are. I better look like normal. And that was the yeah. that was. But look, we'd been up all night. That was like a I don't know, 10 or 11 the next morning, yeah. and, and there were a lot of people who, um, I mean, I was old enough to remember when, you know, bad things have happened in our country. I remember when JFK was assassinated, King was assassinated, Bobby Kennedy was assassinated. I remember when Nixon stepped down. So I've seen some bad things. And when I said that to my daughter, who was distraught, she's like, that's not helpful. And I, I said, but it, it's the reason why you know, I take the longer view, is that we do have yeah. these disruptive things that happen. And as my mother always says, it's not what happens to you, it's what you do about it. Yeah. And that's sure. what I'm counting and on. If you read you. some history, the, the, the whole area around Jeff Jefferson and Washington and Hamilton was pretty ugly. Very ugly, actually. For during this. If, I've been reading the Hamilton book for six years now, but I'm just telling you, <laughs> it doesn't go well for them at all. You know, they barely make it. They barely do. They hated each other, and there was a lot of really rancor. Okay, last question back here for Valerie, and thank you, Valerie. By the way, that, but that was a great picture. That was sad. It was the sad. words of Donald Trump. Okay. Sorry. Hey, I want to thank you. Um, my name is Tony. Tony. I want to appreciate your public service because I come from a background of public service. I was a city commissioner for like five, six years. I come from the border, South Texas. So I was a city commissioner. I, I was on the ground and I, I understand what, what the everyday person in my community deals with. So what I want to know is what is your input in what we can do as, I'm a lifelong Democrat, okay? And I understand the, where President Trump comes from and where the Democratic nominee came from, what I want to know is what can we do as a party to unite and find a new leader? Because right now, and he alluded to that right now, we do not have a leader of the party. And that is my biggest concern right now. I'm a lifelong Democrat. And I want to see something achieved. I want to see victory in 2020. What can we do as a party to find someone that can unite us all. At this time, we don't have that. Okay, that's a good question. Because we talked backstage about how Republicans do fall into line. I mean, the pretzelness that Paul Ryan is displaying is almost breathtaking, for example. 
but 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 they have what 17 people who ran for president so they a lot of people came out and and i think because we have a republican in office we're going to have a bunch of people who are going to run as well and so yes it would feel great if we had that one person right now who we could look up to and say he's taking us through what's a really painful period and I think, well, you know, we had Oprah, but she's disappointed us at this Oprah point. Oprah decided not, she didn't have the fire in the belly. Right. So, but I think what we might want to get comfortable with is having multiple leaders until somebody bubbles up. And it's very disconcerting in that middle period when you don't have that one person who you're really counting on. But it forces us to the point about getting engaged on the ground to be the leaders in our community. And don't underestimate your uh, your community and how you can use your community, particularly now with social media, to galvanize. There's no one leader in Parkland, but look what they've done. They don't have a leader. There's a bunch of them that are all, and they coordinate sometimes, and they don't, and and they you know they get together over social media, they get together in person. I think leadership is going to look differently uh, as we move forward than perhaps it has in the past. And it's more comfortable to have one person, particularly you might disagree with that one person, but that's your person and you can disagree with them if you want. And I think we're going to just be uncomfortable for a while. And that discomfort in our country leads to change. And so embrace that discomfort and let that be a part of what fuels you to get out there and work your butt off to make sure that we can take back both the House and the Senate and the world will be a better place. All right. On that note, Valerie, thank you very much. Valerie, you're always classy, Valerie. Always classy. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this live interview from South by Southwest in Austin, Texas. Special thanks to Andrew Marino for recording it. If you enjoyed the interview as much as I did, be sure to subscribe to the show. You can find all our past interviews in whatever app you use to listen to this or on our website, recode.net slash podcasts. And if you have a minute, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. That helps other people find the show. Thank you for listening to this episode of Recode Decode. And thanks to our editor, Joel Robbie, and our producer, Eric Johnson. I'll be back here on Wednesday. Tune in then.